p.m. Every Sunday, town's always about the culture. The want sculpture, recording every Friday. So here it our way, no need to catch a flight away. Stay tuned for our take. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. Episode 108, After Dinner Conversations. The gang is back here, but before we get started, I just want to send a reminder. Make sure you like, rate, review, subscribe. We are on all streaming platforms or wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave a comment, leave a rate, leave a review. Uh, we appreciate all the feedback. It helps us you know, continue to grow and figure out what the listeners want to hear. Um, so as we do every week, let's start off and, and do a check-in. Let's see how everybody's doing. I'm doing great. Just working. <laughs> Keeping pushing. That's it. I'm doing good, though, for real. Tired. Tired. Tired, bro. I need Friday to come. I need a weekend to come expeditiously, man. I need rest. Well, are you going to rest? Like, I feel like I always say that, that I'm going to rest, and then the weekend comes, and I it don't won't rest. Happen. It won't happen, probably. It won't happen. I just, this weekend, I'm meeting either virtually or in person with all my mentees, so I'm probably not going to rest. Give me a lot of calls, but... I, I just need to just know I don't have to do any work work stuff. I think there's there's a rest in that type of mindset. So that's fine. Okay. Okay. Um, I am doing good. Uh so for me, they literally got me going on campus three days a week now. Look I was just you. trying to chill. True, true student, true student. Um, but it was definitely uh an interesting feeling being back in class full time. I think I had only been on campus for like meetings and things like that. So mm. um, but it's I think it's good um to for from like networking, you know, being with peers and things like that. So I'm excited for this semester. Um, I think it's a good way to end end my educational career. Um, let me stop. But Okay. And my form, my formal educational career, mm-hmm. everything else will be some trainings and, and things like that. So I'm excited. Um, my birthday is coming up as well. So super excited mm-hmm. about that. Um, and Stephen just celebrated a birthday. So happy uh, birthday you, to Stephen you. as well. Sure. Um, and so let's transition into cocktail hour. Mm-hmm. Um, some two news stories that I'm sure hit everybody's timeline. Um, over the past couple of days or past couple of weeks, probably. The first being um, some comments around the football program at Bethune-Cookman University. So for those that do not know, uh, retired NFL uh, player Ed Reed was announced as the new Bethune-Cookman head football coach late December, right, right around Christmas time, mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, so he has transitioned into that role. And uh, recently he released a video uh, stating some of the lack of uh, preparedness around, you know, his arrival. So he was saying that his office wasn't cleaned. He was, you know, some some bad remarks about facilities, about staff, about, you know, the efficiency of his transition, so on and so forth. Um, there is a video out there. I'm not going to play the video, but please, you know, check that out if you if you want to find more information. But I just want to get your overall thoughts um, on the comments on the video, I'm sure both of you have seen it. Um, as we, you know, always talk about sports here. So, what are, what are your thoughts on this? You want to go, Stephen? Want me to go? Oh God. Um, I mean, I think it was appropriate. Um, his criticism and shining a light on what his experience has been. Um, I don't want to dismiss his frustrations. Um, I don't think though he should be surprised. Um, by what he saw or experienced, 
I think we need to work to improve our HBCUs, and we need to do that because they're not in the best of shape in certain capacities. And I think from an athletic standpoint, it's pretty obvious that's one of the, you know, glaring deficiencies, even though college wasn't built for sports, it was built for education. Nonetheless, um, I, don't, I don't have a problem with what he did. Um, and I think when you criticize, hopefully there's an improvement that will come their way. Um, like the only thing I offer pushback is to anybody who wants to try to run up the Deion Sanders conversation, um, shutting that shit down in three seconds. I don't, I don't want to hear anything about uh, Deion Sanders. Oh, this, this is what he was doing at Jackson State, and they was unprofessional too. Um, they, Ed Reed did not come in there and say he's trying to save me. He just went in there to go try it out for all we know, or he just wanted to try out a job and do a job. And so if, if Ed Reed leaves in a year, he ain't getting really any that much criticism from me because, you know, I, I had no expectations of him even going there in the first place. I don't think he had anybody expectations from him going there. And of course we would like our black coaches to stay with HBCUs, but I don't equate him in Deion Sanders situation at all. Um, and so hopefully, uh, was it Bethune Cookman? Am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, they learn from this and future coaches, whether it be basketball, whatever the sports they have, our transition appropriately, and they won't get embarrassed online. No one tell them. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with the not connecting it to um, Coach Prime situation because completely different. But I did see a lot of um, criticism towards Ed Reed, where people were like, especially alumni of uh, or alumnus, whatever you say, of HBCUs that were saying that, oh, you should have keep this in house shouldn't publicly bash into the HBCUs and their institutions. You should be more educated on why HBCUs can't invest in their infrastructure or their sports and you know, all the all the um all the reasons why HBCUs are in the current condition that they're in. Um but I, I think I'm gonna probably agree with Steven on this one because I do think that maybe his words were inappropriate. He didn't have to curse, you didn't have to, you know, shy the whole university, you know, going you know, before talking to anybody else. Actually, I don't know if he talked to anybody else before that, but, you know, maybe man, I got, I understand people have a problem with his language, but I will say that it was just, you know, the truth is the truth. And if it's, if it's something that's really um like the reality of his situation, like, you know, if you show up on day one and you got to promise a brand new office and there's trash in the office, like that's every, any person will be upset about that. Um, and that is gonna, it's just not like, you know, and maybe, you know, a lot of people are into athletics and sports, but it's not just you just show up and coach football, like, you know, just everything, every little single step, little procedure, little way that you go about building a culture is in, in him as a head coach blending and being a representative of the university all goes hand in hand. So I do think that, you know, hopefully Bethune Cookman can meet the standards that he was looking for. And, uh, it could be a good tenure too, because last thing we want is more friction and more beef two at the same time but i will say to people who are criticizing him for speaking out is i mean i don't know if, if we can't if we can't criticize our own institutions i don't know who we can at this point because you have a problem with a white coach did it you have a problem with a hispanic coach did it i'm gonna blame over the black coach did like you know just we shouldn't have problems with that at all yeah no i think mike brought up a good point you know in terms of not knowing who he reached out to or if he reached out to anyone prior to releasing his comments, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I would love to keep things in house. I would love for, you know, coach Reed to have been able to send an email to, you know, facilities. And then, you know, it's taken care of right then and there. 
Um, and so this this video was not necessary, but we don't we don't know if that happened. But I think assuming that it did happen and he, you know, made whatever call he needed to make and, you know, it was met with a less than satisfactory response, then I think to Mike's point, we have to be able to get other eyes on this, right? Because I think as much as we want, you know, ex-NFL players and, you know, top quality coaches to come to HBCUs and prepare, you know, the next generation of talent, we need to make sure that they have the facilities and the resources to be able to do so. Um, and I think we're we're not talking about, you know, grand stadiums and things like that. We're talking about office maintenance, right? Which is, you know, we're talking about making sure, you know, we're meeting payroll for the week, right? We're we're talking about the the little things. Um, and I think, you know, I would love everything to be handled in-house. I would love a phone call to be made and, and the issue be solved. But I think we all know that sometimes it, it's a little bit bigger than that. So um we gotta figure it out. So, but thank y'all for for your comments there. Um Moving on just a little bit. So uh, we're starting the year off already. We are still in January of 2023. And uh, for folks that have not seen, uh, one of the large tech companies has already made a layoff decision uh, with Microsoft deciding to lay off uh, roughly 10,000 employees, which I think is, I think they said a little under 5% of, of their staff. Um, and I think we talked about it at the end of last year with some of the tech layoffs. Would 2023 be a recession year? You know, would, you know, there, there be a huge, you know, financial downturn because of the layoffs and would these layoffs continue into the new year? But again, having these layoffs already start January, I want to say it happened around the 15th. You know, what are, what are your overall thoughts? Is this, a, is this a bad sign? I think Stephen in particular in the tech space, is this a bad sign for, for 2023? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think this is just a wrap up of 2022. I would, I mean, again, I, I've, I've only done small readings in terms of what's going on with other tech companies, but this has been going on since last year. So I don't, I wouldn't, I don't remember speaking about Microsoft's layoffs last year. If I remember, I know we talked about meta, talked about Apple and talked about Google. I don't think we talked about Microsoft. So I think they're just one of the last of the few to get theirs out the way. So we'll see though. Um, I think people are talking about a soft recession, whatever that means. Uh, coming up real soon, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like everything's kind of up in the air right now. We're kind of waiting to see how things play out. It's 2023. Next year's what? The big election year. So everything, yeah, there's going to be a lot of things going on this year that are going to be very important to how they play into 2024. This is kind of like a transition year, I guess, for a lot of states and political parties. Mike, any thoughts? Uh, I personally don't know where the economy is going as of today, as of, as of when we're recording this. Uh, I agree with you, Corey. Like, everyone's projecting, you know, doom and gloom. Well, at least I say everybody. Economists, you know, CEOs, like, you know, companies are preparing, you know, bracing themselves for some type of economic shock or recession to come. I don't know where the, tre the Treasury doesn't know what to do with the debt, the debt ceiling right now limit. Um I have no idea what the hell's going on. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what, what's about to happen. Uh, but that tech thing is a real thing. It, it is scary for a lot of people, especially we all know we have friends who work in tech and stuff like that and big tech. And, you know, that is definitely a scary thing. I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't know what to, I don't know what to say about all these warning signs. Cause like, it's hard to judge what's going on. Cause unemployment is still like very low right now. It's not like people are losing their jobs or anything right now. Um, 
I mean, I'm just hoping for the best, honestly. Like, I have no higher scholarly thoughts on this. I just think that if you got a job, you might want to stay 10 tools down right now. Just lock in for a little bit. Or if you need, if you absolutely need to change, just make sure, you know, you can definitely transition to a company that is, you know, grounded right now. Because the last thing you want is to be left out here. And with all this inflation and then don't have any steady income or lose your main income, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. No, Um. I agree. I think there's, you know, there's so many different uh, vehicles moving at the same time to it, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, what will happen any which way at this point. But I think one of the things that scares me and again, you know, sort of being a tech outsider is realizing the impact that AI is predicted to have in probably under a decade, I would imagine, in terms of, you know, their being in grocery stores, being in fast food restaurants, but also realizing that we're making these substantial tech layoffs, right? So it's not even like the oversight for AI needs that many bodies. So, you know, I think that's the scary piece because I think I always assume that, hey, if we're going to go to, you know, AI, at least that tech space will be well equipped to support it. But it sounds like you know, AI, as it looks, doesn't need that much oversight, you know, if, if program writer or create it correctly. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong with that, but I think that does sort of instill instill some fear in me as I continue to hear about these tech layoffs uh, moving forward. But I guess it's, it's something that we'll just have to, to wait and see what happens. I think it's important to keep in mind, like AI and machine learning, there's still very high concentration, highly concentrated research fields more than they are production of okay. a large scale company. Like a lot of, even like a lot of people who work for those companies often are researchers coming out of a PhD. Rather program. than, rather than tech employees. Okay. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. That's why I'm always learning on the pod. I appreciate y'all. Um, so transitioning into today's topic. So um, Monday of this week, uh, so you all will be hearing this about a week after uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday celebration or holiday celebration. Um, and so one, what I wanted to do with this week's topic is have a conversation. I think we, we all value, um, appreciate the the legacy left behind by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so I really just wanted to to get your thoughts um, on, on his legacy and just understanding, again, you know, we talked... I think we're all interested in history and I think, you know, black history in particular in our own different respects. Um, but I think he left behind such a legacy that I think us, as we continue to develop and grow into to men and to young men, you know, it's important to talk about. And so I would want to open the conversation, just trying to figure out how would you describe, you know, in your own words, however you want to put it, the legacy left behind by Dr. King. This is mad random, but some, I guess, white folks or non-black folks discovered uh, that movie used to watch in school, um, My Friend Martin, and they were showing a clip of the end of the movie. I don't know if you, you watched that movie before, right, Corey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were showing the end, the end of the yeah. clip where um he goes back to his uh, time, and they basically show like him stay on the balcony in cartoon form right before he get murdered, and then there's a gunshot and it goes black. And people were like, you guys were watching this in school? I was like, yeah, I watched that movie probably like every year until like at least eighth grade. And I, <laughs> and like, and it, I never occurred to me like how wild that movie was until I saw the video. But I think 
his his legacy is transformative. It's kind of like it's the overarching civil rights legacy, right? You know, civil rights is led in memory by Dr. King, right? Even though there are countless people who took up the mantle before him, he's become just the icon of it itself. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's clouded, right? You know, there's been there was a lot of um, uh, controversy seeing um, some Republican or some very right wing people quoting him on social media and everything, like his quotes and stuff like that. I think you know people only pick and choose what they want to hear from King, and they don't always take his whole message. Um, but I think his legacy is greater than life itself at this point. Um, you know, without King, I don't think you you have as significant attention or understanding of the black history without him kind of being there to be kind of like the, the, the face and then everything else follows after. I feel like I know his legacy. I can speak to his legacy only personally, because I think that was it what is now probably 80 something years now, I guess, and since the sixties, 1960s. Yeah, 40, or 60 years. 60-something, 60, 60, 60, 60, yeah. 60 something years since then. Um, I feel like he speaks on social issues in much more eloquent ways than I could ever speak on them. He could, his, his public speaking, his ways of uniting people, his ways of having integrity um, and being at the forefront of every action that he said, um, even when not only just white people, but I think people forget that black people are also against him. We're also not too favor him half the time. Um, he, he, he got kicked out of the um, snake, the southern, um, southern, southern Baptist southern leadership southern conference. Southern I think. Lead, yeah. Yeah, 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 I apologize for messing up the name, but yeah, he was he was you know exiled from his own own bishop leadership uh, uh, group. Um, and you know it's a way to see society today. And we got all the street names. We got the posters, pictures, murals. I mean, but we, you know, nothing that he ever talks about was actually ever implemented. It's not really pushed forth. Mm-hmm. Keep talking about a dream because people love the abstract of it and not really what's you know. What, what, can we move required? Yeah, you know, and not the dream wasn't just integration. Like you know, <laughs> I think they just they really they took the two sentences. That was like the one the big the biggest I guess most I, I don't say iconic, but just the most notable like federal policy the desegregation policies, but. You know, and they take the I have a dream speech and try to apply it to it. But really, there are people who are still living in poverty conditions, still facing war, still like, you know, being hampered by all these type of inequalities in society. And if he was here today, he'll still be marching and preaching and, and protesting. <laughs> like, you know, it's just yeah. same stuff is still happening. Um, so for me personally, I just like. There are certain men in history where it's like, man, can I even ever amount to that type of spirit, that type of leadership, that type of personification and reality of a man. It's just such a contradiction to for us to like on the personal level value him so deeply, but then at the same time see a society that doesn't that doesn't really that that did not, I should say, inherit his, his legacy or what he wanted in his world. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree with everything that that you both have said. I think the only thing that I would add from a legacy standpoint, I mean, for me, his legacy is is monumental. I think, you know, if you go to any black grandparents house if you don't got a dr king picture somewhere it's it's certainly in the attic or in the basement because it was it was hanging up on that wall at some point because i think it was it was that impactful right and i think you know if you ever talk to 
to elders or to, you know, older church family or just older family in general about them getting the notification, however they got it, that Dr. King had been shot, right? I think, you know, to realize the the feelings that everybody had, whether they had known him or whether they had just seen him on TV, mm-hmm. to know that and I don't, I can't think of any other icon that's not you know a celebrity in some way shape or form you know when i say celebrity i mean you know athlete entertainer yeah yeah. that has had that impact you know since then i think mike you know mentioned it's it's been 60 years so his legacy is monumental and i think you know history civil rights is is what it stands for but i think you know just teaching one the value of education right i think to understand you know, I think going to to college at 16, you know, um, you know, finishing, I believe he had his PhD at 26, 27, you know, so understanding like this educational legacy, the you know, he used to to quote Thoreau, you know, in a Southern Baptist church. So, you know, realizing that it was it was so much bigger than I think sometimes we even we even acknowledge we see you know the brief history lesson in these McGraw Hill textbooks or we see a street name or whatever the case is but and so I think it's important to acknowledge all the facets facets of of that legacy and I think you know education is one of those but I think just sacrifice you know he gave up really his young adulthood to to give it to this movement you know, he wasn't 40 years old when this was happening. You know, he was in his mid 20s. He was our age, you know, walking in in front of, you know, he didn't know what would, what was to come over the other side of these bridges and the other side of these movements. But he sacrificed himself and, and his time and his life and his family for something that he believed was the greater good. And so to that, I think, you know, you can't thank and honor him enough for for his legacy so it's so important that i think we have these conversations that it doesn't get diluted you know by you know a one day celebration or you know one you know annual tribute because i think the legacy is is so much deeper um and so for you all i think i think this is probably a really good question for the two folks on the pod i think you know steven you know, having his own public speaking, you know, experience and and Mike just recognizing and having an appreciation for for English and literature, you know, as his background. What are some particular speeches or quotes that stand out to you um, by Dr. King and, and why? I would say, at least for me personally, I think as a kid, I was obviously the average speech guy. I feel like that's the only speech they showed until I was like, uh, they actually never, I don't think they showed other speeches. I think my dad just showed me other speeches. <laughs> but for me personally, my favorite, I, my second favorite is the mountaintop speech he did. I think it was the night before he died. But my first favorite speech is 1964. I want to say it was August. If it wasn't August, it was like, October or something. Uh, was it August? No, it might have been October. Anyway, he is. He was in Mike's favorite city. He was in Philadelphia, and he was speaking to a group of middle schoolers. Mm. The speech is called "What Is Your Life's Blueprint?" Right? Yeah. You can see it on YouTube. Yep. But I think they found it. They found like the old original ABC recording from some kid or something. But the reason why it's my favorite speech is because he says a lot of profound things in there, which. In some instances, might be like semi-controversial. He talks about 
embracing your blackness and like being proud of your hair, no matter how nappy it is. He talks about doing jobs to the greatest of your ability. And I, I might have said this on the pod before, but he has a, he has said some somewhere in there. He's like sweeps sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Yeah, and I think probably one of the most impactful, I think, things he said during that speech. And he was, I want to say he was quoting, I can't remember, he was quoting like an old philosopher. And he said, if I was so tall as to reach the pole and to grasp at the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. And I always think about that often. Just like, I don't know. It's just impactful to me in terms of reminding yourself that you're judged just by your own intellectual prowess and how you handle yourself in the world. Um, and he, again, he, if, if you learn anything about Dr. King and his speech patterns, he is well documented to be a reader and you know he's a reader because of what he says during his speeches because they're not it's not plagiarism but it's not obviously all his own words he he draws from a lot of different inspirations and even um he even says it like when he i think he even quoted um langston hughes um a poem mother to the son at the end of the speech as well so i like i like the speeches because he pulls from so many different places he tackles so many different topics and I think it's one of the most impactful just because he's speaking to the children, right? Like this is the future. These are people who could probably heed most of what you're saying because they're still learning um, more so than anybody else. So that's my favorite speech. And I listen to that speech often. I probably, I used to like do homework, listen to these type of speeches, but yeah. yeah that's what turned you into a radical. <laughs> that's, that's really what it was. For me, um, there was a speech, it was the same, well, I guess my favorite speech is, well, it was a part of a speech, it was the one I, I posted on MLK, um, my personal IG, um, is when he talked about there's nothing new about poverty. And even though we have all these new means and mechanisms to eradicate poverty, the real question is whether we have the will to do it um, as well. And to follow that up, I would say that there's also a book that he has that's called, it's titled The Measure of a Man. Um, and in that book, he's pretty much goes through all these different schools of thought, through religion, through uh, psychology, uh, through society, just different views and values and kind of trying to get to a main central point of what a man is and what he's supposed to mean. Um, and as someone who is personally a Christian, I do think that um, there's this one quote in here. Um and I can read it really quickly. Um, he was talking about through the, through the perspective of like Christianity. And he was saying that this is man. He is God's marvelous creation. Through his mind, he can leap oceans, break through walls, and transcend the categories of space and time. The stars may be marvelous, but not so marvelous as the mind of a man that can comprehend them. Um, this is what biblical writers mean when they say that a man is a made in the image of God. Man has rational capacity. He has the unique ability to have fellowship with God. Man is a being of spirit. Um, and I do think that it just always helped me to think beyond what society tells us or the secular meaning of a man um, and how we can kind of push through barriers that our own mind places on us too at the same time. And if you don't know much about MLK's life, I know a lot of his life is focused on his uh, activism. Um, he definitely went through a lot um, of terrible times um, through his struggle and his fighting and his unifying, um, his community building. 
Um, a lot of scary times for him and his family. And I do think that he showed a different type of iron will, a different type of faith and a different type of purpose that, you know, and that's like Stephen is definitely present in his speeches, but also, of course, in his writing as well. Um, and I, just, I can only hope to emulate. That's about it. But those are the two things that definitely moved me uh, for sure. What about you, Corey? Um, I think I would. So for me, when it comes to, you know, uh, speakers public speakers i think you know it's between dr king and, and james baldwin i think as two of probably the greatest arguably the greatest extemporaneous speakers um in history um and i think you know for me when i first started speaking it was writing a speech and memorizing what was what i was going to say or you know doing my best to memorize it but to know that you know i think there's there's a story that goes with Dr. King's mountaintop speech, which I would say would be my favorite speech, was he wasn't even going to go that night. You know, he was in the bed already and he was not going to go until, you know, um, I want to say it was Jesse Jackson, but somebody in, you know, the immediate circle called him and said, hey, they're waiting to see you. You know, they're ready to see you. And he got up and delivered his speech, said again, for me is arguably one of the speeches that most stands out and, get, and granted probably not, not every speech was, was recorded, but one of the, you know, speeches that we have is arguably the, the one that stands out most for me. And he wasn't even going to give it yet. He delivered it as if he had been planning it for, for weeks on end. And so to know that he's able to make that much of an impact from ideas that were circling in his head that he was able to put together and shake a room, you know, you know, leave an impact, you know, change history. Because I think, you know, if you listen to these speeches between I Have a Dream, Mountaintop, and maybe, you know, a handful of others, these are things that have lasted far beyond his lifetime, right? We're talking about it 60 years later. Um, and so to know that, you know, he wasn't even going to go. So I think I, I honor those quotes, you know, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promise. And so to realize that you're leaving this impact, you're leaving these quotable lines that are able to inspire. And for some people, I think unite the diversity of people in a room. I think a lot of times when we look at civil rights and we look at black history, we look at black people as a monolith, right? As, you know, this one thing, but there's so much diversity among black people, right? When he's delivering speeches to these audiences in churches and in, you know, local uh, halls, there's lawyers in there, there's sanitation workers in there, right? There is people that have PhDs and there's people that didn't finish high school. And he's able to connect these people together over a common mission. And I think that's truly the goal of any speaker and to be able to do it so flawlessly with minimal preparation at times is, is truly impactful. So, you know, I think mountaintop definitely stands out for me. I think the quote that stands out for me and one that I try to live my life by is the measure of a man quote, which says um, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So to know that, and I think, you know, it's becoming more and more true as I get older and it's not comfortable, it's not convenient, but, you know, where will I stand? You know, will I still be who I am? Will I still, you know, be committed to to my purpose? Will I still, you know, be a person of integrity? And I think that's, that's always my goal as more and more challenges come, as more controversies come, you know, will I stay true to, to who I am? And I think I'm, I'm doing 
doing my best at that. But to know that, again, we're talking about these quotes 60 years later, and these are vital quotes for, for each of our own perspectives in our own lives is shows the impact that he was able to make behind a pulpit in a behind a podium in a room. Um, and so I think that's, that's truly amazing. And so continuing the topic of speech, um, transitioning more to the, I have a dream speech, which again, I think for the most part, that second half of the speech, which most people know, I don't think he was going to deliver that day. Right. And so I think it goes back to, to all of these things that are, you know, truly amazing to, to think about in, in retrospect. But do you think his dream, as described in the I Have a Dream speech, has been achieved? And I think a second part of the question, which you could address, you know, whenever, is would he be proud of where we stand today as a Black community? Mike's shaking proud? his head. So I'm, Mike, Mike's said shaking proud? his head. So I'm going to let him go. That's the exact, that's the exact thoughts I had in my studio. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he'd be proud, though. But I, but I think, but I think we have to look at it proud of the state, but also acknowledging the gains that have taken place as a community from sixty three till twenty twenty three. I think he would be happy, or because I feel like the older generation is is easier to please with uh, incremental progress, and I think him living or being born in the nineteen late 1920s and living through the 30s and 40s and the 50s and the 60s and him comparing it to now, I think there will be some contentment and happiness in seeing that there's been progress. But I don't know if proud describes how he will look at the Black, the black community or the, how far Black individuals have come as far. I don't, I don't know. I just, I can't, I can't see it. I don't know. Because you have to ask yourself, do you think that his peers are proud of where we got to this far? Are the Jesse Jackson and the Al Sharptons of the world proud? They might say they're proud on TV, but are they really proud? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, but I think, so, I mean, I think to think about it and, you know, to play devil's advocate, right? Not to say that I don't agree with what you're saying, but I think recognizing that back to his team, you know, Jesse Jackson was considered a viable candidate for president, you know, arguably twice. And so to to think about, you know, where that speech, the climate of that speech in 63, to recognize that that happened roughly, I want to say it was late 80s, you know, roughly 25 years later. And, you know, now, you know, 2008, we had, we had a Black president. So, I mean, these are, you know, significant things to acknowledge as well, not to say that that speaks for the larger community, but I think, you know, we do, you know, acknowledge some of those gains as well in this conversation. No, no doubt. No doubt. Um, I don't go ahead, Mike. It looks like you got a lot on your head. No, I got a lot. Um, just, <laughs> I agree with y'all. There's two sides of it because Corey's right. Y'all both right. You know, there's things that, are, of course, he did not get a chance to see before he died in 1967, eight, one of those at the end of the decade, 1960s. Um, in a good way, like you said, President, he can see Barack Obama. You know, I'm sure he would be proud of that. You know, that was a, a historical moment in history. You know, I always think that in the 200 plus years of United States history, who would have thought we would see the first black man become president? Um, 
or the first black vice president in Kamala Harris <laughs> too. Uh, I think those are good things. Um, maybe he'll be happy about the black wealth too. You know, there's a whole bunch of wealthy black people now. Uh, black billionaires, things that did not exist back in the day. Um, I think those are some positive gains. There's a lot more HBCUs than they were back then. A lot of blacks, uh, students, and you know, who go to top end colleges because they have great careers. You know, uh, all three of us are in that cat in that group too. You know, we all went to great colleges. Still going to great colleges right now. Um, as far as me and Corey, you know, getting great education, we do we're doing meaningful things for our education. You know, those things are all good things. I'm not. I'm trying not to be too pessimistic. That's my initial reaction. You're all right. There are there are strides that have been made. Um, but on the other hand, you know, dying at the end of the '60s means he didn't get to see the uh, crack era. Mm-hmm. That means he didn't mm-hmm. get to see the mass mass incarceration era. That the real mass incarceration after the seventies, eighties, nineties. Uh, he didn't see Reagan. <laughs> you know, he didn't see President Reagan and uh, neoliberalism come into front. Uh, he didn't see the two thousands uh, either. And it's just like he didn't see no child left behind. He didn't see Hurricane Katrina. Um, he didn't see a whole bunch of stuff that was to indicate like where we are as a society and how society still neglects and neglects to respect. Um, any type of life or promise or dignity of black people in this country. Um, so I don't know. I mean, has our median income even increased since he passed? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think they're all good questions. I think Mike, to your point about black wealth, I think even when he was here in the sixties, black America had like the ninth largest spending power in the world. Right. And so I think we're still roughly ninth. So yes, it's increased based on inflation, but I don't think it's necessarily increased in terms of buying power substantially. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of things it's hard. And again, this is why I'm playing devil's advocate to see, because there are two sides of the coin, depending on how you look at it. But I think, you know, a lot of, there's still a lot to be fulfilled. uh, I think based on that speech. Yeah, because I'm tired of the the black child, white child holding hands thing, content of the character thing. We can come on. We can. Oh we can, hey, hey, hey. I'm, so tired. I'm not. To, I'm trying not to focus on that. that speech in like middle school, bro. To yeah, be honest, been, bro. Yeah, that's, that's not the issue anymore. <laughs> Do I get out? You need to get to them, them, them 1967 speeches, bro. That's what we're here for. Yeah, bro. Uh, those those speeches got him killed though. <laughs> at the same time. That's um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I so. I'm gonna save my rest of my comments because I do have another question that's more appropriate for those comments. But I do think that um, I don't know, man. I'm like, was John Lewis happy? Was he was he proud before he passed, man? I don't know. John Lewis was he seen it all? He was there through it all. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how he you know to say he was he was a um, he was a he was a senator, I think. Was he? He was a senator. Yeah, very senator for Georgia. Yeah, yeah, he was a U.S. federal senator before he passed, and. You know, he was he was still advocating. He was still he was still doing um protests. I forgot what he was, he was sitting on the floor. He got arrested. It was, I want to say um, I forgot, I forgot what happened. Ferguson, the Baltimore ones with uh, yeah, was oh Freddie Gray, yeah, yeah, yeah Freddie Gray, Gray was in Baltimore, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and he was in a tender tender age when that happened. So I don't, I knew we can't speak for Dr. King, of course, but I will hope that he will see the good and the bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's probably the hardest part too is that you see, I think the ultimate highs and the lowest of lows, right? You see, you know, I think in Maryland last night, we just inaugurated our first black governor in, you know, in Westmore. 
And, you know, two years ago, we had the uh, George Floyd incident, right? So you see the highest of highs and you see the lowest of lows. And so I can't imagine, you know, had Dr. King still been here to have to navigate this place where, again, you have such this sort of dichotomy of, you know, again, these really high highs and these really low lows. So it, it'll be interesting. It would it would it would have been interesting to to see. Um, but I think it's a, it's an interesting conversation to have. And so I want to wrap up with this question. And I think, you know, there's been so many think pieces about this in, in recent years, uh, you know, and so many, these are, this conversation has probably filled so many living rooms and family reunions and things like that. But do we feel that integration has provided the outcomes that it once predicted for the black community? I think it was always looked at as, this ideal situation, this idealistic, you know, transition from segregation to integration. But do we feel that it's provided? And I think we could talk about it from a social standpoint, from an economic standpoint, but provided, you know, the outcomes that, you know, we always envisioned that it would. That he envisioned or we envisioned? Um, I think both would go hand in hand for, for the sake of the conversation. I'm going to say I'm going to give my conditional yes. <laughs> conditional yes on two reasons for two reasons. Just for the sake of our conversation, the conditional yes. Um, it's not complete. Like, it hasn't, I clearly has not, for everything we talked about just now, it has not solved every problem for the Black community in the United States. But there's two reasons why I say this. The first reason has to do with education. Now, there is proven evidence that after uh, federal desegregation orders and the whole busing era from that Gen X had to go through and all that, um, Black children did gain more resources, more funding, and, and had a higher increased educational attainment and college access after uh, uh, desegregation. That is evidence. That's true. Like, you know, because they had to, they had to blend up everything. You couldn't just go to white and Black. What goes to white schools goes to Black schools because they were all, they had to um, fund all schools equally. Black, you know, they did get more. Um, that's for one thing. Uh, the second thing is the civil rights aspect of it. Because before integration, I, I know, I feel like people time, like to romanticize seg the segregation era. And I know we are like, oh, things might have been better. You know, we have Black Wall Street, uh, all the other stuff that people say. Um, but it was, to say it's a terrible time is an understatement. Like, you know, the what people had to go through back then and their lack of civil rights, yeah, I mean, you had no right to do anything. It's not like, oh, yeah, no one gonna bother me. Yeah, we segregated. No. You even looked at the white side of the street. They wasn't coming to bother you. You couldn't do a damn thing about it. You know, and the police didn't care. No one cared, bro. Like, you had you had absolutely no power to walk through certain types of towns, access to certain types of jobs, resources. You couldn't even step foot in those places. <laughs> you know, you couldn't even look at a water fountain, much less, you know? And just being protected and having the Fourteenth Amendments and you know all the um all the all the um I'm sorry all the federal policies from JFK to FDR um not FDR JFK and Lyndon B Johnson um like all those all the federal civil rights stuff that came through those two pres presidencies were far more impactful to like removing black people from second class citizenship um and giving them a, at least a more relatively more respectable type of existence within the country, in my opinion. Uh, I think that's, that's why I gave my condition on this. Because definitely before integration, I I don't I, I don't know. I just don't like people think that that was some perfect world that Black people just exist in. 
you being segregated did not stop white terrorist violence against you. Y'all, there was there was there was plenty of black families that were just working hard, raising their kids, going and going home, not not bothering nobody, nothing. But just because the next white town over didn't like you, they was coming over to burn everything you got down. They didn't want to see you succeed. They didn't want to see you breathe. They didn't want to see you having fun at the beach. They closed down all that stuff. You know, they they cut people off from all types of stuff. It was violent. It was terrible. They were literally being ter- terrorists to these people, bro. They were blowing up churches. It was burning down, you know, schools. Like it was insane. Like that's like you know, I don't think people would think that just because you're going to be separated, that yeah, you're going to keep all the stuff the same. Like, oh my God, what's that quote? The white man's ice is always colder. Is, is that what it is? The white man's ice yeah, is yeah. always colder. Yeah. Listen, I'm I, I say that because not. Oh my it's God. True. But it's like I think the cultures are always going to be connected in this country, which is a deeper conversation for a different day, as far as like white and black cultures. Um, and so even if you were segregated, that's not stopping people from, you know, projecting whiteness, always looking for whiteness. Because if they still have all the resources, you being segregated just means you have less resources for your own community. Like, you know, and there is minor segregation. That's the fact of different conversation. But, you know, I just those are my two biggest reasons for sure. Civil rights, education. I'm giving conditional. Yes, because it didn't solve our problems. But you go ahead, Stephen. Um, I'll echo Mike's comments about education, uh, as he knows much more about that than myself. Um, I think, I'm not sure if you can say that societal relations have improved or disproved. I think if opened up a lot more opportunities for, um, people in entertainment, like actors and actresses and stuff like that, you know, that's a very niche part of our population. I think where it might not help, and this is why I often hear from people who are older than me. And so the generation that grew up around the time Dr. King died or even lived through his generation is that a lot of the black businesses to Mike's point, the white man's ice is always colder suffered after integration because they lost the businesses of their black contemporaries Um, from like bus systems, you know, mom and pop hardware stores, uh, even like farmer's market and things of that nature. Like once integration became a natural part of society, a lot of those businesses faded away because the white individual society weren't looking to integrate. So they weren't going to go now to the mom and pop shop. They weren't going to go to uh, ride the black city buses. They're not going to the black hardware store. They're going to go to the same places they've been going to since they know. And it's really was only black folks who were making the change to do these new things because integration was a, a real thing. And so when yeah and to mike's point so oftentimes as as that generation i hear sometimes romanticize the civil rights era but i think there was just a longing for the successful part of it the successful black entrepreneurs the successful store owners and churches and everything under the sun even though that white terrorism still does exist and so I, i don't think it's helped in that capacity but i don't think it's something that's irreversible I just think it there was a long damaging effects in terms of like the sustainability of black entrepreneurships for almost 20 or 30 years, because, you know, without, I don't think white folks were running to support black businesses the way black businesses at one point, especially during the civil rights movement, were going to support each other. And I can't look at that as a positive. So, but I think in the long run, I get, we have a much more educated population um, to a degree, to some degree, a more healthier population. Um, so there, there, there's all, there's always been, it's never, it was never going to be perfect. And of course we, he didn't see it off to be what he envisioned it to be. So. 
What do you think, Corey? Um, but I mean, I, I think. Question. Ooh, um, go ahead, Mike. Is that you think it's integration's fault that black people choose not to support black businesses as much? Um, it's a tricky answer. I feel like I'll get in trouble by answering. I mean, in a uh, tricky situation. Right. Um, I'm just curious because, like, you, said, you know, I think what you're saying is very real. I'm just like, mm-hmm. do we? Is that really like you know a white man's fault? Like you know that. We we tend not to go to our own churches anymore. Don't support our own stuff. Yeah, you know, our own situation, think, own businesses. I, I think this is the consequence of choice mm-hmm. in some instances, mm-hmm. and the and the most politically correct way possible is like when you give some. You don't got to be politically correct, Stephen. We it's no. Nah, I don't know who's listening. Sometimes, <laughs> man. I don't. You know me. I don't mind saying what's on my mind, but every once in a while, I'd be like, eh, I yeah. don't know. This one sounds on topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on the topic, but. I really, I, I do believe this is it's a consequence of choice because my, I mean, we spoke about, we speak about all the time, like they, white, white folks, especially in the South had quote unquote, more polished things. Like mm-hmm. the black buses weren't brand new buses. They were the ones that the white folks probably threw away and they said, Hey, y'all can have these buses. You can fix them. And you know what I'm saying? People are just not naturally, but they want the new thing. They want something that's quote unquote nicer. I, I think by allowing that choice, it just became natural to say, hey, I have the option. Let me try this. And God forbid it's you might have had a better experience. You're not going to go back to what you used to do. But I think, again, to this is the third time we said this quote. The white man's ice is colder. Like you, There's just something there from a mentality perspective that you just want to do that instead. And so I think, unfortunately, to a degree, not saying it's all to blame, but to a degree, I think, Integration did do that. It did kind of kill off in some senses. So I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, yeah, it did. My fault, my fault. It did. No, you're good. No, it wasn't like a right or wrong answer. I was just curious, like, you know, because it's it's an interesting point because you're right. I think the integration of society is like, oh, now now we have access to all these things that we didn't have access to before. But, you know, can we still blame that? our lack of support for our own institutions still that we're in this very diverse society and you know is it, is it still a real thing like for me on our podcast we advocate for you know shout out black business every week when we can like you know and we try mm-hmm. to support each other we try to do the best we can but i don't know and maybe we should have a whole different episode on or get a guest on for it how our community relations have changed since then but yeah it's just, it's just interesting i'm sorry Go ahead, Corey. i'm sorry i'm sorry no, you're good. You're good. I think it was a good question. Um, I think it's an important question because I think it goes, you know, one of the, I think y'all touched on education and, and access because I think, you know, again, I think similar to Mike and Stephen, my answer would be a conditional yes. But I think, you know, for me looking at it from a financial economic standpoint, I think it's sometimes unfortunate. Again, obviously I wasn't there in the fifties and the sixties to really know the conversations that were happening. But I think the way history at least portrays it is, you know, civil rights came and then there was a transition to the poor people's campaign. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think as Stephen, you know, mentioned earlier in the episode, we don't talk enough about the 67 speeches that Dr. King was giving as he made that transition. Mm-hmm. Right. We talk about the civil rights piece. And I think looking back, you know, if there is any criticism that I can give, and obviously, you know, that's a whole nother conversation in and of itself because you don't want to give criticism to, you know, so much sacrifice that took place. Mm-hmm. But I think if there was a way to better inter- intertwine those two movements, right, the poor people's campaign and the, the civil rights movement, which 
again, looking back in history, look like they came one after another to combine those. Because I think if there's an argument for, you know, dealing with the wealth gap that existed, I think it would have been best dealt with immediately, you know, during the civil rights movement, right? So as we're closing these black businesses or these black businesses are closing, what subsidies are happening to, you know, keep them afloat for a longer period of time? If we're transitioning from, you know, privately held black buses to now, you know, you're using the city buses, what black staff are we putting on the city bus company so that they're able to make decisions as well and, and you know, deal with the routes or what, you know, black staff are we putting on the parks and recreation department to make sure that there's enough sanitation workers in the, you know, the black side of town. I don't think enough of those conversations happened as we integrated. Right. So if we're looking at integration, you know, what subsidies are we giving? Are we calling them reparations or subsidies or whatever we're calling them to deal with the, you know, the racial discrimination that took place in regards to the GI bill that allowed, you know, black, uh, white folks to get homes and, force, you know, um, black American veterans to still, you know, have to rent because they weren't able to benefit from GI loans or GI scholarships to, to go to school. Right. So I don't think enough of that economic standpoint was dealt with as we integrated. It was sort of like we integrated, okay, now let's deal with the money versus let's, you know, deal with the money as a part of this integration. Um, I think that would have likely, you know, led to a, to a better situation, right. As we're, you know, I think, to Stephen's point about it was a an issue of choice, I think you know sometimes you know what subsidies could have been given to these black supermarkets to allow them to to match the discounts that white supermarkets gave, right? And so you know it, it's always interesting. You know I think we talked about it before the mountaintop speech. One of the things that Dr. King said in the mountaintop speech was take your money out of the white, you know, this is 67, right? We're talking yeah. about taking the money out of the white bank and putting it in the black bank in the black insurance company. Don't buy, you know, a certain bread, buy, you know, the black owned, you know, from the black owned baker. This is, that, those are the words of 67. I think a lot of times we focus on 63, 64, but I think 67 talked about the money, you know, early 68 talked about the money. And I think that would, I think, you know, when you look at the wealth gap today, that's still so prevalent. You can't you can't make that up. You can't make up for it. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times, yes, you know, San Francisco, I think now is having a reparations conversation. But if you start doing stuff city by city, you're never going to make up for that. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, it would have made sense to do it in conjunction you know, with all that was going on in the 60s. And I think, you know, he was, um, Dr. King was murdered, unfortunately, right at the time where the money conversation was starting. Um, and I think that's my, you know, biggest shoot. I wish that would have happened, you know, moment um, when it comes to, to integration and civil rights is, is that economic piece there that I feel like we we missed out on. Yeah. Um... I wish we had more time. That's such an important point that people don't know about. That's one of my favorite things Dr. King spoke on, just the difference in the government support towards mm -hmm. different racial populations too. That's also why I got the policy. I don't think people even know that, um, that how much the government was involved in creating the economic base for generations. Irish Americans, yeah, Italian Americans. For the, for the European immigrants yeah. that came during the early 
20th century too. Even even you know how we uh you know hired for policing and fire right they look like mm-hmm. a lot of those ethnic groups you know were able to get positions in, on these boards and things like that to sure. you know get retirement and pensions from the city that you know you know black folks unfortunately missed out on and so I think it it's so important to have that economic conversation and I think learn from what happened in the 60s to be able to have these conversations with your local government you know when it comes to local policy or when it comes to state policy um to to realize what worked and what hasn't worked you know since then so I think Mike makes an important point about being able to understand the policies that are up for vote you know, at your town council meeting or at your city in your city or your municipal government, because we need we need to know the policies, because I think so many times there's there's language that is so limiting for us that we don't even that we aren't even aware of. So um, great point there, Mike, too. So I, any oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say any final thoughts. So you good. Go ahead. Yeah, I actually have a clip of Dr. King talking about this exact issue. I can play it real quick. You want, um, you want me to send it? You, you, want, you, you can share your audio, right? So you can do it if you want. Uh, yeah. Or you oh, want me to play? You. Yeah, I want you to play, bro. Hold on. I'm uh, I'm gonna send it to you real quick. But you can you can talk about something else real quick. Hold on. Okay. Um, I mean, in terms in terms of, of final thoughts, I, I mean, I would say this, Corey, uh, and you kind of highlight briefly when I said, um, King, more speeches from 1967, and I think <laughs> to my credit, that's probably what radicalized me in high school is listening to those type of speeches. I think if you want the most authentic version of King, you have to go towards the 18 months before he died. Because I think there's a lot of realization that he saw within the Black community, within the civil rights movement, and even the struggle of, of Black Americans versus other immigrants, like Mike just said, there's just there's too much authenticity in his speech. And I think in earlier times, especially in 61, 62, 63, he tried not to toe the line too much because he understood, and I think he still understands 67, the importance of trying to get some things passed and trying to make sure we just get something done, put something down that we can work from. Mm-hmm. And I think by the time he got 67, he felt like he has put something down to work from and he could be his most authentic self. Like, you, even... If you go back to 65, like early, early 60s and late 50s, uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X were, quote unquote, button heads on philosophies. Um, and you can credit, you know, Malcolm X not being as tight with the Nation of Islam, uh, Nation of Islam uh, around 64 or whatever. But they became closer and closer in philosophy as time passed. And I believe there's a reason for that. So it doesn't change, like I mean, it just doesn't change. Excuse me. I think it changes how you view Dr. King. And I always, I'll, I'll say this, right? And I don't mean this in a bad way. I always judge people. Always, I, I started to judge people who would quote Dr. King, and they couldn't give me anything past 1963, mm. because it showed me you didn't really know King to me. Because I, I still appreciate King in his non-violent and very peaceful and very i want to think i want to say hopeful mannerism i think pre-65 king is very hopeful i think that's his part of this is just an innocence of believing that everything can be changed and we could all be kumbaya just living sweet i think when you get past that realization there needs to be more action there needs to be more organization there needs to be more purpose like it can't just be we're marching 
and we want integration. It needs to be we want people to gain wealth. We want our people to have a, a funding source. We want our people to get the, the 40 acres and a mule. That are pro- like, I, I feel like somebody needs to be that brutally honest. Um, and I, I, I sometimes wish like somebody like Malcolm X was alive to see that too, because I feel like he would have appreciated something like that. Mm-hmm. Because probably that, that's I think that's the king he wanted to see. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? The, the non-apologetic, blunt, and not being, not just, just being honest. And of course, people always say, oh, well, that's that's what got him killed. And I say, man, if it took him being his authentic self and keeping it real, I'm, I'm going to take that every day. Cause I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want a soft king that's going to toe the line because we're not going to get changed that way. Yeah. You know, if King was the same King he was 63, I don't think we, we get the same change. I think he, he knew, he knew he needed to change. Unfortunately he lost his life for that, but I don't know. I, I'm a big, I'm, you know, I'm a, a fan of what they call him. They, they call King after 67, the radical King. I'm a fan of the radical King. I'm a hundred percent stand of the radical King. I'm a fan of Dr. Martin Luther King throughout his entire life, but I'm a fan of the radical King. So, no, that's valid. That's valid. Uh, give me one second, Mike. Oh, Mike, and what's and what's the clip again? So we could um it's highlight a- it while Stephen pulls it up. Oh yeah, for sure. So the clip is about when we were talking about the economic policies, and especially how the U.S. government back in the earlier 20th century had a lot of explicit policies that benefited white families and workers in order to provide them not only just with farmland and, you know, colleges, but it was it's a deliberate link of how they went out of their way in the government subsidies too. They went out of their way to provide white families and white workers with that type of support and the uh, GI Bill too, like you said, and FHA loans, um, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Um, how they went out of their way to provide white um, workers and families with that type of support while telling black people and families and men and women that you needed to work your way up through the ladder on your own type of thing. And that expecting government support, you know, they they call black people welfare, queens, kings, like, you know, all this other derogatory stuff. But at the same time, a lot of white families, even corporations today, build their wealth off of government subsidies and government yep. support and help too. He yeah. just, he's outlined it so well. The problem. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, Through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington, in this campaign, we are coming. So he just really, he really digs deep into like the central issue of like my own purpose and why I pursue a policy career too. 
um, as well. And we even get into how even after integration, public public planning, urban planning, <laughs> that that has done the number two by cutting highways through a lot of densely uh, families, densely packed uh, black and brown families in their communities too. You can go yeah. from New York, you can go to Chicago, you can go to Philly, you can go to, it doesn't matter where you go. to Hartford. You know, you can go, yeah, you go anywhere, bro. You can go anywhere in the country. There's there some type of history with urban planning, uh, making ways so communities didn't have the same resources, same tax bases, same ways they can get together and work and build businesses, build homes, stuff like that. Yeah, there, there, there's so much to do. And I, we always say we got to continue the conversation, but I think for this one, mm -hmm. definitely uh, we need to to continue this conversation. So I thank y'all so much for, for having this conversation, at least part one of it. And um, we'll be back again for part two, but let's transition into table talk. Steven asked me how I found this tweet, even though I'm not on Twitter. People send me tweets, Steven. People send me tweets. Mm -hmm. um, and so the tweet says, and let me, matter of fact, let me pull it up on my phone so I can make sure that i'm reading it correctly hold on hold on let's see okay so the full tweet says so i'm glad i'm out the game to get a wife today y'all boys gotta be a ceo poet chef gangster comedian psychiatrist psychologist otherwise she's settling good luck and godspeed Actually, there's a video here. I didn't even see this before, but I'm not going to play the video. Um, I'm just going to ask the question: What are your thoughts on on this tweet? Is it is it accurate? Is it are they are they missing something? What's your thoughts? Well, first of all, the tweet's funny. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, first of all. Um. I feel like we talked about this before, maybe like a year or two ago. Um, just the way uh, expectations have changed in, our, in this new era. Um, I'm not going to blame it on social media. I don't know what it is, but that's just that people do have, I think people do have a lot more unrealistic expectations of their partners of what you're supposed to show up with like day one. <laughs> like, you know, not not growing with a person, not, you know, maybe building some habits over time, learning some, learning how to be with each other. But um, I do think that yeah, I don't think it'd be all those things, but you know, in real life, you know, if you have a good pairing and you you both are willing to commit and be in a relationship and you're dating. Um, but yeah, man, I do think it's a little harder out there for people in the streets. Yeah, I don't I don't even know what y'all want me to say, man. It's just Oh it's just god. This is a lot of chatter in this tweet, yo. Like I I no, don't even is, think no, that's why it's hilarious. I don't even think the woman who like allegedly like I know it's a it's a hyperbole in this tweet, but even the woman who said I don't even think they believe themselves when they say it. Like I and I, when dudes do it in reverse, I don't even think they believe it, yo, because I, I've seen men and women get into some wild relations. I just I just don't think people believe that. Okay. May, maybe people have created these standards. We'll see how long they keep these so on so these quote unquote standards. I mean, Corey, you saw it today. I saw you in the likes. One of our one of our uh Contemporaries from UConn just got proposed to. They they're gonna be a wife. I'm not another great. Select, you know what I'm saying? Select, it seems like a select few. It doesn't seem like this is really a mass issue. And but I think in in that situation, but I would imagine in that situation, expectations were relevant. Like they were on par. Oh, of I don't course. think they were. Yeah, and he looks like a fine fellow. Yeah, but I, I like. I think if you come out the gate with demands. 
either coming from a place of hurt or there's just a lot going on with you that we can't help you with right now. And like I said, I, I told you, I've been telling people this for years. I'm really curious to see what it looks like a decade from now. There's all a lot of this barking and this, that, and the third. What does it look like in, in 10 years? Because a lot of people say that they're completely fine being single for their life. And that's what they say now. Facts. It's a lonely world out there. That's what that's what some folks told me. They told me it's a lonely world out there. So I don't know. No, I think I think I think y'all hit the nail when y'all said, you know, if, if she like you, she like you. You could be zero of these things on on this list. Um, if she rock with you, she gonna rock with you. And I think you know, I'm learning one that that's true as you know more and more true as I get older. Um, but I think I think it is important to have some expectations. I think you know, obviously, this like Steven said, this list is in hyperbole, but you know. I think be realistic, be relevant, understand, you know, what's a want versus what's a need. I think, you know, now more than ever that what the OGs used to say about, you know, the 80, 20 rule, you know, you get 80% of what you want um, is, is becoming more and more true. And I'm so, you know, glad that I'm, you know, beginning to recognize that, you know, um, and, you know, future partners as I'm, you know, dating and things of that nature. But I think, you know, for this tweet, you know, I don't think I think people know, you know, deep down what they really want. But I think, you know, there's a lot of cap going on out here. So mm. everybody, everybody, you know, stay protected um, as, as you meet people, um, you know, as you continue to, you know, find your process. Shout out to everybody that's getting engaged. I found I've seen uh, getting married because uh, um, we're going to celebrate the marriages. Um, but you know, I've seen a lot of engagements recently. I wasn't gonna laugh until season two. I, I didn't want to laugh until I, I listened to what you said again. No comment. So shout out, shout out to all of y'all. Um, but yeah. So moving right along, we're gonna go on to plug a plug. I just found this business. I have not been yet, but I plan to go in the next couple of weeks. It is located in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, it is a record store, um, but they allow you to come in, look through the records. They sell CDs, records, cassette tapes. You could come in and listen um, and just chill and, and vibe out. So the the spot is called Mount Vernon Records. It's black owned. Again, a crazy collection of records. It looks like, you know, from pictures and things of that nature, selling CDs, cassettes. So bring back some of that nostalgia. Um, you know, if you want to listen to things on certain forms. I know things sound differently depending on, you know, how you listen to them. So, you know, if you're in the, the DMV area, if you're in the Baltimore area, uh, make sure you go check them out. Mount Vernon Records. Uh, find them on Instagram at Mount Vernon Records. Um, and make sure y'all check them out. Word. Gotta go check it out. What are we working with today? Um, mine's a little bit different, so I could go first. Um, so I've been trying to uh, sort of monitor, you know, some of the, or not monitor, but, you know, just be more cognizant of some of the content and the music that I'm listening to. And so I found people always say the, the Christian rappers don't know what they're doing or, you know, they, they're not hitting. But I feel like in order to rap without, uh cursing and to be able to you know 
just have a, a positive message. I feel like you got to have, you know, some level of skill. And I think this rapper certainly does. So make sure you go check him out. His name is Don Reddy. Um, but this track is Don Reddy featuring Bats and Young Chris. And the song is called Heavenly Poetry 5. Yeah. Yeah. Don Reddy, stay ready, yeah. Mr. Young Greatness, yeah. Flows cutting the soul, cleaner than tummy tucks. Lot of the antics getting old, but God ain't done with us. Told him Jesus taking the wheel, he told me buckle up. Now I hop on peace and I release like I have bubble guts. Yeah, my soul fell in love with the king like DB. All I want is what's in the potter's house like TD. Got the devil low post, ISO like Phoebe. Cause I've been really in the scrolls and I've been eating my weedies. Look, they were sleeping before, but now they watching like TV. Most of these rappers too greedy, most of their lyrics is cheesy. Most stop following God because they thought it was easy. Most people saying they Christian but live blind like Stevie. Yeah, a lot of capping on the internet. They standing tall, dressing they flaws like some vinaigrette. They say they really about the truth, but they just pimping that. God put me in this space, walking with grace to put an end to that. For real. And I'm just hoping that they stay ready. Yeah, look, okay, look, I've been grinding, moving purposely. I don't need no fame, I don't need nobody to worship me. I walk with God so the devil can't burn at a 30 group. I've been through a lot, but God came with every emergency. Urging me, constantly giving me certainty. Jesus Christ lived a life and he lived him up perfectly. Jesus Christ, yeah, he died for you and me personally. God's love can be traded for any little currency. You ain't mean I can go in. God knows I've been through it. When it comes to rapping, I'm fluent. Fluently in motion, giving God devotion. Smooth us without lotion. New wave in the ocean. Ministries exploding. Hold up. And hey, let's take it back. Yeah, let's take it back. Uh, let us stay the fact. Let us stay the fact. I know it looks like we've been popping for a minute. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, my guys the one that did it. Yeah. Yeah. Stuck between a rock and a hard place Built like Steve Rogers, I could go all day Guarding me, probably gonna be a hard lace Like skin chefing like Bobby Flay I saute whatever the sauce say Ingredients not important, the media not informing My God is a three-in-one and hit like a parlay The Lord had to carry me through my sh Like Shawshank, I'm butt paid A lot of y'all not saved, you're what fake Some of y'all picked and got clipped like bald fade Some of y'all be really sleeping on with Dawn Save The gospel Facts. Alright, Don, I'm done. Straight like that. So again, that is Don Reddy uh with Bats and Young Chris. The song is called Heavenly Poetry Five. Shout out to uh, my Instagram suggestions that put me on to Don Reddy. Uh, make sure I go check them out. Mm. Heard it. Um, I like that. I'll, I'll go next. Uh, it's weird. I just realized my says hip hop, not hip hop and rap. Uh, my song is from well, I'll say it is a resident of after dinner conversation. Uh, this is Bodie James and Cuns. Song's called Footprints. It's off the project. Be that as it may. Footprints. <laughs> Works. And the nigga in my city that don't know me for trap. 
Ask that nigga, did he have a Benz before he was rapping? I remember pushing yams, selling dope in the Saturn Before I ever took an advance, the rollie was platinum Shook hands with some niggas that don't know me from Adam Took it and ran, action on me, fam, I owe you for that one Bust down Cubana bracelet on the wrist that I cook with To remind me of them grits and them zips and that good scent Caught a fish and I hooked it all the wrist when we took trips Niggas stepped on the work, so good left a footprint Footprints in the sand, my Jesus walk with me. Yeah, it's kind creatures to fam, you know we are a city. Hey, talk to me, I'll talk back, now let's talk about it. Uh huh, I'll turn your block to a blackboard and put some chalk around me. Where we at? Slime Billy around the city on skinnies with shins. Out of town with them plates, getting 50 a clip. Niggas living all the ways just to get hit with a city. Three bodies on the street, you can't get jiggy with this. Whole thing, have nine piece, split or a big. I've been doing this since back when Mel Gibson was rich. Lit the wick on that Roman candle, stick as big as a twig. Fell asleep in the band, though I used to live in the speed. Broke dance the whole satchel, got some blow that hit harder than shrapnel. Front of the Ukraine, if you ain't gang, I'ma tax you. Used to play in St. Matthew versus Melvin and Sid. Read the text of my brother Wayne, that nigga Delvin, he dead. Put my hands in my head, sent a prayer for my mans. Told him what God sent my flight just to be there when I land. It's still concrete. Footprints in the sand, my Jesus walk with me. Yeah, it's kind creatures to fam, you know we are a city. Hey, talk to me, I'll talk back, now let's talk about it. O.D. James and Cuns, be that as it may, came out, I believe, last December. The song's called Footprints. Check it out on your DSPs. My song, I got a nice, um, great song featuring Sampha. I haven't heard a song from him in a while. Um, and the song is titled Sampha's Plea uh, as a song by Stormzy. Instead of reactive Act on truth instead of distracting Let it stream through when I need a language Oh, oh please could you help me to be Stay patient instead of just snapping Stay rooted instead of just packing I've been baking, I've been somewhere out, I've been lacking Oh, oh please, I, oh please I need the sun through the trees I need the cooling of the breeze I need reflection by the sea I need Oh, please. Mm. And I'm down on my knees, and I'm looking for the water to beam out of space, to refresh my faith, to make me feel like there's more to life than the what's beyond. More to life than. Uh. Oh, please, oh, please. Oh, please, oh, please. Oh, please. Please don't leave me in that eye 
There's a future I need to invest I. There's a seed that I need to protect I. Zero in and laser those threats I. Oh please don't leave me distressed I. Oh I need to relieve these regrets I. Yeah but please don't leave just yet I. I still need your force like a Jedi mm, Yeah And girl I'm begging, begging, begging you Oh, please, oh, please. I've been begging, begging you. Like that was tough. Oh, Sanford's plea by Stormzy. Okay, I got some music to check out. I got some music to check out. Yes, sir. Um, well, that has been episode 108 after dinner conversations. Appreciate y'all having the conversation with me. Um, we definitely got to be back for part two. Um, but in the meantime, again, make sure y'all like, rate, review, subscribe. Follow us on so on Instagram at ADCombos. Again, on Instagram at ADCombos. Tell a friend to tell a friend. And see y'all next week.